This is episode 157 with professor of exercise physiology, multiple ultramarathon finisher, and host of the hugely popular Science of Ultra podcast, Mr. Sean Bearden. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. My name is Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm your host and head coach of Strength Running, my award-winning site for endurance runners. My goal with Strength Running is to give you the training ideas, strategies, and resources to accomplish whatever big goal that you might have, from running your first race ever, to qualifying for the Boston Marathon, preventing your next injury, or becoming a stronger, more coordinated athlete. I'll be bringing you the titans in the fitness world, the pro coaches, performance experts, elite runners, sports psychologists, thought leaders, physical therapists, and strength coaches to give you new insights into this incredible sport. I want you to better understand running, to view knowledge as a competitive advantage, and to always have the tools to take your running to the next level. Because the more you understand the sport, the better decisions you'll make about your training. Don't miss our other 156 episodes, our video channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, or where it all began, strengthrunning.com, where you can find our coaching services, detailed guides on everything from building mental skills to running for beginners, to nutrition and fueling for endurance runners. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Gatorade Endurance. With higher electrolyte levels for more demanding training, no artificial sweeteners, and a lighter flavor that doesn't turn your stomach, it's a proven option for endurance runners who want to dial in their training. See all of their fueling options at GatoradeEndurance.com and use code STRENGTH20 for 20% off your order. My guest today is fellow podcaster Sean Bearden, who hosts the Science of Ultra podcast. He's a professor of exercise physiology at Idaho State University, where he focuses on ultra-endurance performance. He's published research in the American Journal of Physiology and the Journal of Applied Physiology. He studied at Yale, UVA, and George Mason. And on his podcast, he interviews the smartest scientists in the world about the physiology of ultra-endurance. And in this conversation, we talk specifically about running ultra marathons, any distance longer than a marathon, and what that does to your body. You'll hear what occurs in the body during a 100-mile race that doesn't happen during a marathon, optimal fueling strategies for ultra endurance, the most prevalent myth surrounding ultras, and a lot more. This is an exciting conversation about one of the more extreme aspects of our wonderful sport, ultra running. Even if you don't run ultras, knowledge is that competitive advantage, and understanding the training that predicts top performances can help you in any distance. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Sean Bearden. Sean, I'm very much looking forward to this. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Jason. It's my pleasure. So I borrowed an idea a while back from a fellow coach, Steve Magnus, that coaching itself is a blend of art and science. On one hand, there's a lot we don't know. And I think there's room for each coach's individual style in a training program. But then there's also a lot that we do know. So we can't ignore the fundamentals of physiology when we're training. And Sean, here you are, you're a coach, you're an exercise physiologist, a published academic, you're a professor at Idaho State, 
And I'm just really excited because whenever I can learn from a scientist like you, who's both in the lab and then out on the trails is just a real treat. So thank you again. I think this is going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to it as well. So Sean, you have uh, such a rich academic background in exercise physiology, starting with your undergrad days and moving on to your postdoctoral work at Yale and finally your job as a professor now. Was the science of exercise always very appealing to you? What got you started down this road? Yeah, well, if if we go way back, I mean, I suppose the beginning of it, like for so many of us, was just being an athlete myself. But you know, when I first started in college as an undergraduate, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, I very quickly after the first first summer after college, I worked in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Virginia. And I worked in Washington, D.C. And I, I rode the bus in or van pool in with a bunch of lawyers. And they told me about what their average day was like. And so by the end of that summer, I was confident I didn't want to be a lawyer. And that next year, I took a class in exercise physiology because it was interesting to me. And and that was it. The, I fell in love. I didn't realize until then that you could actually make a career of studying this stuff. And, um, and, 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 and I decided that was what I wanted to do. However, what I thought was that I really wanted to be much more of a practitioner. I wanted to work directly with athletes. And it wasn't until I spent a summer working in a corporate, uh, corporate wellness center that I realized it wasn't fulfilling enough for me to just to just be working with adults who wanted to get fit. That I really was much more intrigued with the puzzles, the puzzles of of physiology, the puzzles of training, and so that's when I decided to go on to PhD and and go into academia. I love it, and you know, I had a brief flirtation with being a lawyer myself when I was an undergrad, and I had the exact same experience. I went and interned at a law firm for a summer, and I had that experience where it taught me above nothing else that I was not made out to practice any any law whatsoever. So I'm so glad that I went a different route, uh, and I'm glad that you did too. Now, when you were you know, starting to get involved in sports as a kid, was it running or was it something else? Oh, it was soccer. My, well, I, I, I'll go way back. I grew up, I was born in Florida. And then we moved to Virginia when I was just a few years old. And swimming was a big deal for me. So I balanced swimming and soccer. But that was when I was very, very young. And um, I I then, after after deciding that I really just didn't like all the monotonous laps in the pool that I wanted to focus on soccer and soccer was my life until my early twenties. I played at the university of Virginia. Um, I even went and played a short stint for Galway United in Ireland. And, um, then, then that was sort of it. MLS was just about to start. And my old, my college team became DC United who won the first MLS year. But by then I was already in graduate school. Okay. So you were primarily a soccer player until your adult years. Um, When did you really start running, not just for sort of soccer preparation, but really as a thing by itself, you know, starting to run simply for the love of running? Right. So one morning in college as an undergraduate, my roommate dragged me out of bed. I mean, quite literally, I was asleep and he dragged me out and he had been putting, he was putting on this charity 5k. That was the only race that I ever actually did. I, I I should back up actually and say that's not quite true. One winter I did indoor track in high school, 
but um, I wasn't really taking it all that seriously then. It was more like just doing something to stay fit and 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 so on. So fast forward to me stopping playing soccer, dedicating myself to my lab, my research program, academia. And by the time I got into my late 30s, early 40s, I was hitting one of those, the midlife crisis, if you will, of wondering, could I could I be as fit as I used to be? You know, had I lost it completely after a decade and a half of of just being generally fit, and could I be fit again? So what I started doing was saying, like, what's epic, and what's what's huge? You know, what would be the the story of a lifetime? What could I get into? And I and I looked at, uh, well, first of all, I looked at soccer again. But the thing is, nobody, no adult, um, is really taking soccer as seriously as I was going to at that time, and that was going to frustrate me. So what about individual sports and I thought about triathlon. That's something that's really, you know, athletic, multidiscipline. And so I looked at triathlons and all of the images that I saw on the web were just of people packed together, shoulder to shoulder on the start lines and while swimming. And I thought, like, that is not me. That is not what I want. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe just a marathon. Marathon, that's something epic. That's great. And But the same thing happened. I saw all the people packed in the start lines and out of the gates. And I said, I... I that's not for me either. And then I stumbled on that there was a trail running race in my town right here, right around my house, actually, that uh, had three distances, 21 miles. Let's see, what was it then? So it's changed, but it was, uh, it was, it was uh, 21 miles. It was a 60K and 100K. And I decided that's it. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to test myself with. I'm going to try to get fit for one of these again. And I knew that if I didn't go for whatever the longest distance they offered was, that um, it was never going to be satisfying. Because I always think, you know, could I have done the longer distance? So my first real running event was a 100K mountain trail race. That's just incredible. That, <laughs> that you bit off all that your first time out I for did. A, sort of a, your real first official sanctioned race. Uh, and, you know, now you've 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 done uh, so much with the ultra marathon. I mean, your podcast science of ultra, uh, and you know, all your coaching and all that, what is it about the ultra marathon that excites you so much about those relatively extreme distances? You know, I think coming from a perspective of being extremely fit myself as a soccer player, as I was that I have this this need or this desire for myself to just push those boundaries, to push the boundaries of my own capability. And, you know, luckily enough, uh, and I, I do attribute this to a lot of genetic luck, choosing the right parents, um, having the right childhood where I was fit, that 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 was reachable for me. But I, I wouldn't say that the ultra marathon per se is what captures me intrinsically, what captures me intrinsically is pushing the limits of what I can do. And then now with all of these other things that you've described, all of these other endeavors, helping other people in those same situations. If I had not had those same blessings, if you will, um, from early in life and maybe a 10K or or, or losing a hundred pounds or, or something like that was my version of pushing my limits and my epic, then th that's probably what I would be doing. And that's probably what I would be helping other people do as well. But so for me, it's really, it's finding my own boundaries and then sharing that because I know it and understand it with others. Now is finding out 
your boundaries, is it more exciting or maybe intellectually challenging for you when you're looking at a very long distance as opposed to say, you know, even a 5k, you could challenge yourself by trying to run it as fast as you could and just continually trying to improve upon that time. Is there something about the distance that is appealing in a certain way? Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent question. There really is. So when we think about ultra marathons, you know, unfortunately, I think we have this one word for something that can be many different sports. So we could have a, a road 50K compared to, say, Tour de Gion, which is over 200 miles in steep mountains with nearly 90,000 feet of vertical gain and loss. You know, we can, ultra marathon captures a huge range. And the, if we just sort of take the, the really classic canonical ultra marathon, think of it like as a 100 mile trail race, a lot of things happen in an event like that, that you don't come into contact with or, or don't have to deal with nearly as much in, in marathon or shorter distances. And that comes from the, the, the craft of what you're doing and having to take care of yourself. So every little decision that you make, the most minor decisions, just you know, extra gulps of water in the first hours of an event like that mean a lot later on. Very subtle differences in how you pace yourself mean a lot later on. Even just the self-talk, what goes on in your head at different times is exponentially more influential as the race gets longer and longer and more and more difficult. And so for me, it's the ability to explore the entire package of keeping me going even when I'm long past total exhaustion, I've, you know, for us, for a hundred miles, glycogen depletion and hitting the wall is, is, is not like something to sort of be feared near the end of the race. Like it might be for a marathon. It's just something we get out of the way right in the beginning. And we're dealing with it, you know, for 10, 12, 14 more hours. So it's the whole package of having to deal with keeping yourself healthy and and, and, and viable and in a good mood and eating well, that I think is really a lot of the fun of figuring out long races. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, I, I've long thought that at the polar extremes, you know, the really long races and then also the really short races, there's an element of being more technical that, you know, maybe in a a 200 or a hundred meter dash, you really need to know your form. You need to know body positions. Every little tiny decision that you can make is going to affect your finish time in such a way that you could be a totally different athlete at the finish line. If you know, you know how to accelerate and you know how to get out of the blocks. And then in the hundred, just like you were talking about all these little decisions compound and get magnified over time. And so I think for that reason, the long races and the really short races are are challenging in that very unique way. And uh, I think, you know, for the reasons you listed, those super long ultra endurance races really test you in so many ways that go beyond simply the physical. You know, you talked about the mental side of things. You talked about, you know, the importance of fueling and hydration. And, you know, there's more puzzle pieces to eventually fit into that final puzzle in an ultra marathon. And, and I think that's what makes them so 
interesting to me and I'm almost intrigued and fascinated by the ultra marathon uh, idea, you know, this, this idea of running for, you know, maybe 12 hours or 24 hours or longer than that is just such a, uh, this romantic novel idea in my head. And that's probably because I've never done one before. Um, and, and one of the things I was going to ask you was, you know, what, actually occurs in the body during one of those really long races, like a hundred miler that doesn't happen during a marathon. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that physiology and you alluded to some things, but I was hoping we can go a little deeper. Yeah, sure. Let, let's go there. So uh, maybe we can start with simple, you know, general markers of fatigue. Uh, certain things happen in a road marathon where, you know, you mentioned hitting the wall, running out of glycogen. Usually that happens roughly at the 20 mile mark for most runners. Uh, now in a hundred, th- this is, you know, you're, you're only 20% of the way done with the race. So maybe we can start with the fueling side of things. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're, when somebody is running a marathon and running to their potential in a marathon, and let's start with just somebody who's reasonably well well trained, because it, it gets you know more nuanced and trickier if we're talking about somebody who's walking a lot of it. But it, somebody who's reasonably well trained and running a marathon, and you're looking at um, using a, a fair amount of carbohydrate or glycogen stored stored glycogen, which is our body's stored form of carbohydrate, because of the intensity that you're able to run that race at. Well, you could start a hundred mile race or, or an all long ultra marathon at that pace and use up glycogen just as fast, but um, you're going to find yourself in a you know in a world of hurt very early on. So, bring talking about about fatigue. So, in ultra marathons, we generally start off a lot slower, a lot easier. Again, depending on the distance. So, a flat fifty k isn't going to be all that much different from a marathon. But if we're talking about a mountain hundred. We're starting off very slow. I mean, people are starting to walk the gentlest of hills right from the very beginning. So it takes longer to run out of glycogen. And when I say run out of glycogen, I mean that both the liver and the skeletal muscles that you're using, which are two primary sites of where glycogen is stored and used from, um, are are become low enough to be essentially depleted. But even if that goes beyond the normal wall of 20, 21, 22, whatever happens to be miles, you know, you're still going to hit it at 30 or 40 miles. That's only because the intensity of exercise is a bit lower. So the rate of glycogen use is lower. It's balanced out by our our larger use of fat during um, lower intensity exercise. So it's really important to start eating early. And for the durations of almost all ultra marathons, carbohydrate ingestion is the only thing that you're really going to use by the end of that race because we metabolize fat a little bit differently. So you can eat fat. And in fact, most ultra marathon runners will know that pretty quickly, pretty soon in the race, you crave carbohydrates or at least sweet things much less. And you start craving salt and fat. And we don't know why that is. But when we digest and absorb fat, it it goes into a process in our bloodstream and actually gets shuttled out to to adipose cells or out, out to fat tissue and to other tissues of the body, but very, very little of it is directly usable by muscle. So it has to then be brought back out of that fat tissue for a muscle to use. And the muscle does store some of its own fat, and that's what it prefers to use that plus that what has circ- what has circulated then come from the adipose tissue. So that's a long way of kind of getting at that fat metabolism is a little little trickier, but it is 
it is a larger percentage of what we use in ultras than what we would use in um, in a, a marathon simply because of the lower intensity of exercise. So I've talked enough. I hope I gave a decent introduction to where you wanted to start and you know let you tell me where you want to go next. No, that's great, Sean. And and I think uh, you know maybe what I'd like to explore is you know. Uh, in an ultra marathon, if you are ingesting carbohydrate and, and some fat and you are prolonging that period where you become more depleted of glycogen, what happens after that? What are the strategies that, you know, ultra, ultra marathoners have to employ to keep going that, you know, marathoners just don't even have to think about? I think marathoners think about the same things, but it's in, it's, so much more pointed and for such a much shorter duration. So it's a different experience. You know, I crossed the finish line at a race one time and a, a good friend of mine, Luke Nelson, was was standing there. He had he was helping out and volunteering at the race. And um, so it was a 50K, hard 50K though. And um, I had just done a hundred miler not too long before. And he looked at me and he said, he and I did it together, the hundred miler before. And, and he looked at me, he said, he said, did that hurt as much? And I, my response was to him, it's just a different kind of hurt. And, and that's true. So I think, I think marathons, for those who are listeners of your show, marathons all the way to 5K or to any other distance can hurt just as much. It's just a different kind of hurt. And I know a lot of 100-mile runners say that the reason they don't run marathons is because they're too hard. So they run 100-milers instead because you can walk and you can take it easy and nobody looks, looks down on, on that. Um, the the things that we have to deal with though are that are that I would say are, are somewhat different is the narrative that goes on in your head, and there's a huge amount of psychology that comes into the longer the race is. Most people can buckle down and be determined and grit their teeth and push hard for five minutes to an hour, and it may really hurt. But most people can develop the ability to do that. It's a different thing to be at 2 a.m. in the dark when you didn't quite have the right clothing and you're even starting to shiver a bit because your sweat now is getting cold and you haven't seen somebody for 45 minutes and you know it's going to take a while before you get to the next aid station and you've just run out of food and usually you should be asleep and your mind starts going down this spiral of, I'm not a runner. I'm terrible at this. And you know you've got another 12 hours to go. Those are the kinds of of discourses that go on in our heads that we really have to hone skills to be prepared for. And I think that becomes the major issue of somebody going from, say, a marathon up to being able to do long ultras. Yeah, I think that mental shift is just absolutely enormous. And with you describing, you know, precisely what one might experience in the middle of an ultramarathon, you know, it kind of gives me those anxiety sweats, you know, I'm just getting nervous <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> um, now, I'm also interested in kind of like what happens to a runner's form and their ability for power output, because you know, these things are, are that the ultra marathon is just so interesting because what happens after 12 hours of running or 20 hours of running is 
is so novel compared to what happens after two hours of running. And so, you know, in your experience, whether that's academic or in your, you know, personal or coaching experience, what are some of those issues that happen to a runner's stride and their ability to run hard after they've been on their feet for such a long period of time? That's a, that's a, a wonderful question and very timely because just a couple of years ago, we wouldn't have had some of the answers that um, I'm able to give you now. It's just been in the last couple of years that we've found some some uh, some new discoveries, if you will, some new studies that uh, that really speak to what you're talking about in terms of a person's stride and a person's gait and a person's form. There can be important changes on an individual level. That is any given person may may end up with some real changes. But by and large and overall, what we've found is that there there aren't as big a change in those things as you might think. If a person's pace slows down, their stride length, their gait, their other things really adjust similarly to as they would have if they had just been going at a slower pace even, even when they were fresh. Those things don't change, seem to change a huge amount, but what, and that's also that, that is recent research there. The thing that has really excited me that's just come out in the last couple of years is a recognition that our capacities change during an exercise bout. And so we often hear talk about say VO2 max. Well, VO2 max is important. It can be a strong indicator for who might come out in the beginning, front of a race, towards the end of the race, on the big scale. But when we really start trying to nail down better predictive ability, one of the values that's really important is critical power. Um, and in running, we would often call it critical speed. But now that there are power devices out there, we can talk about critical power as well. We can say critical speed. So this is also called the fatigue threshold. And for a lot of deep physiology, they may want may not want to go into um, to, for fear of losing some listeners for, for this episode, is simply to say that this is a metabolic threshold. And in my opinion, probably the most important metabolic threshold because work rates above that are metabolically unsustainable, aerobically unsustainable, only can be sustained for really very short periods of, of time. We're talking orders of minutes. So th that threshold becomes a demarcator. Now for work rates just below that, the whole fatigue process is completely different. Lots of things can, can result in fatigue. We can be talking about glycogen depletion, dehydration, um, and, and on and on and on, muscle breakdown and, and wear down, lots of other things. Above that, there's a very programmed and patterned uh, a, a progression of fatigue. So that threshold is appropriately named the fatigue threshold. And marathoners, for example, will run their race pushing the upper limit of that. Elliot Kipchoge, for example, has been reported to, to run at about 96% of his critical power for a marathon. People that are less fit may be a lower percentage of their critical power that they could hold for an entire marathon. But it tends to be at a, at a, at a value that's somewhere around, say, 10K race pace for people that are reasonably well-trained. So that calibrates a, us in the discussion. Now, back to this research in the last couple of years, we have learned now from, from Andy Jones' work and, and the work of, of um, uh, Clark uh, in his lab, that critical power 
declines after about two hours of exercise, of, of moderately intense exercise. So it even applies to people in marathons. Again, unless you're Elliot Kipchoge, I guess, beyond two hours, we know that that critical power, so that's sort of your ceiling for aerobic capacity, is coming down. So to know that these, these fundamental set points that we talk about in a lab setting are not actual set points that hold with you, that they can actually shift during an exercise, that's a huge discovery. And what that means is that during an ultra marathon or any distance longer than, than say, just a little bit shorter than the marathon, any distance beyond that, our upper end drops. And this may be a huge part of, I think this is probably a huge part of the reason why sustaining a constant effort or a constant pace or a constant output progressively feels harder and harder because it actually is progressively a higher and higher percentage of what you can now tolerate because your ceiling is coming down on you. That's fascinating. Now, is critical speed in any way related to lactate threshold? Because the way that you describe it as this metabolic zone, where as soon as you pass this threshold, you know, it's metabolically unsustainable. That reminds me very much of lactate threshold. Yeah. So lactate, as you're well aware, I know, Jason, um, lactate and lactate threshold has a massive, convoluted, twisted, confusing history. So anytime we, we learn to measure something in the laboratory, we then start to characterize it in the context of exercise and exercise intensities. And that's what happened with lactate. It's what happened with oxygen consumption. And so what people discovered was that if we measure lactate as we increment pace or effort or speed or power output or whatever ha happened to be the exercise modality, if we steadily increase effort or output in stages and measure lactate at each one of those in the bloodstream, that at very easy workloads, it doesn't really change much. There's some subtleties there, but it doesn't really change much. And then at some point, it starts to increase in the bloodstream. And everybody wanted to characterize that curve. Well, if we do it perfectly, like if we attached an IV, you know, and, and I like steadily drip out blood constantly as we slowly increment pace. What we'll find is that it's a pretty smooth curve. There are some changes, changes in the tangent line, if you will, the slope, but it's a pretty, pretty straight line. So, or a pretty, pretty continuous curved line. And so people wanted to identify some points. And so we identified these points of a two millimole value, a uh, rise just above rusting levels, a four millimole value, and so on. And that has made things very, very confusing, uh, especially I think often for runners. If you go back to the old, older research literature, and in fact, still today, the research literature, if it's published from people who were around and learned um, just even 15 or more years ago, you will com commonly see in the exercise science literature the lactate threshold as a term used to define the first rise above resting levels or sometimes a two millimole value, which is, which is uh, roughly about, about the same thing. Maybe just that's just a little bit higher than resting levels. And then something higher being uh, termed a little bit differently. And you've got lots of terms for that higher point. Now, in, in running general popular press, Whenever we see the term lactate threshold, it's almost always referring to that higher point. So I have athletes all the time reading an old paper and then getting really confused. And I tell them, yeah, it's because 
what you're reading that says lactate threshold is completely different from the lactate threshold you're you're actually thinking of. So for those reasons, it's a tricky and difficult term. But to answer your question more directly, the lactate threshold that you read about in more running popular press circles is the upper lactate threshold or the second lactate threshold or the one that sometimes is put at four millimole value. And that is just a bit below critical speed or critical power. It tends to be right about the point of a maximal lactate steady state. But the maximal lactate steady state is by definition a steady state and critical power defines the boundary before between what's sustainable and what's not. So, so critical speed will be just a little bit above a maximal lactate steady state, which in and of itself is just barely above the lactate threshold that I think you and most of your listeners are thinking about. And that sort of makes intuitive sense to me because when you described critical speed as, you know, somewhat of a 10K pace for a, a well-trained athlete, you know, a well-trained athlete is typically running a 10K in under an hour. And a common definition of lactate threshold is uh, the pace that you might be able to sustain, sustain for an hour of racing if you're well-trained. So it, it does kind of make sense that the critical speed is actually a little bit faster than where you might be for lactate threshold. Yeah, very insightful. You're quite right. Um, I want to I want to go back to the fueling discussion that we had and talk about um, you know some of the fueling best practices there are for some ultra marathons because you know this is one of those areas where you know depending on who you're reading what you're reading who you're listening to there's a million and one different ways that you could potentially fuel, you know, say a hundred mile trail ultra marathon. So is the science clear on the fundamentals or is there still a lot that we don't know at this point? Oh boy. Yeah. There's, um, (laughs) I I'd say there's, there's very, very little that we do know or understand. Now, now that sounds kind of pessimistic, a a, a narrow view of things. I, I should back up and I should say there are there's a massive amount of understanding of the general physiology of the foods that we eat and how we use them and and all of that. And that extends up to any distance and it applies up to any distance. And, and, and so all of that is very, very useful. There really is a lot that we do know, but there are very applied questions within, within ultra marathon running that none of the previous literature can even be stretched to begin to understand, for example, like the craving of, of fat when really it should be carbohydrate that our bodies need most. That and gastrointestinal distress. I mean, what are the things that are really causing GI upset and GI distress, or at least just dysfunction in the ability to absorb nutrients in the gut that occurs later in races? These are things that, that are very open questions. So if you were training for an ultra marathon, let's say a hundred miler, how would you go about fueling? And I know, you know, there's no clear way to, to, to answer this. And, and of course it probably will depend a lot on your experience with the distance, what's comfortable for you, et cetera. But how would you do it? Yeah, you're, you're super right there in, in saying that experience matters a lot here. It really, really, really does. However, a lot of athletes get caught up in this notion of N of one and extending from that, we get uh, pigeonhole, we pick kind of pigeonholes ourselves into the, I, the, uh, the way of thinking that, that I can just figure it out for myself. 
That is, if I figure out what works for me, then I'll have it dialed in and it's set. And I have found, and I think there is, there's good physiology to support the idea that that's never going to happen. In other words, you might have a perfect race in terms of your GI tract, but doing exactly what you did in a hundred miler this year may not work at all eight months from now or next year. And that gets very, very confusing and frustrating for people. The approach that I have found that is best to take, and honestly, I don't even have to have been an ultramarathon runner to suggest this just from general GI physiology and understanding is that our guts are, are constantly adapting. So the, the cells that line our, our digestive tract, the cells that line our, our intestines, are constantly turning over. They're constantly dying and sloughing off. So the average lifetime of a cell that absorbs all the nutrients of the foods that you eat lasts there only about five days, give or take, truly. So the cells, they're actually doing all the job of you know, breaking down that pizza you ate and absorbing all the bits and pieces of that pizza. Those cells are new. None of them are older than, let's just be conservative and say a week. None of them are older than a week. So it becomes difficult a difficult question to talk about training training the gut. So we can train our gut for larger volumes of food. That's one approach now to answer your question is that I would be uh, eating while I'm running to get used to the psychology really of the discomfort of having a full stomach while I'm while I'm running. That's important just to get used to that. But to train the lining of my of my gut, we want to appreciate too that you're doing that every day, all day with the foods that you eat. Whenever you eat, your gut is adapting to the foods that you eat. This is why, say, when you go on vacation, you travel somewhere and you eat foods that are a bit new, you can often have some GI upset. And part of the reason for that is because it's it's just new to your gut. It's not used to handling maybe those foods or those combinations of foods, um, especially in the environment and the hormonal changes that might go on, say, with 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 traveling. The same thing happens in races. So people will will say, I like potato chips. I like Oreo cookies. I love some jelly beans. And as they get to an aid station, they eat those things. And they think that it's fine because they normally eat potatoes or they might eat a cookie now and then, or they might have some sugar now and then but everything goes south from there. So what we want to focus on in terms of the exact foods are eating the foods that you already eat and not changing from that. Your gut is used to it. If you know you will not have access to the kinds of foods you typically eat, then it would be a reasonable idea starting about three weeks out from a race to eat a lot of the foods that will be available to you. And that sounds a little gross to say, and now you're going to start living on cookies, potato chips, and jelly beans. But that's the way to get your, your, your gut used to it. And, and you can do that all day long, not just during your runs.
That's fascinating. I think the idea of training your gut is one that it's almost like one of those additional puzzle pieces that you really have to figure out when you're targeting these longer races. Cause you don't really have to worry about that if you're running a 5k or really even a half marathon. So, um, now what are your thoughts on the, the keto diet? I know this has become a lot more popular, especially among ultra marathon runners who, you know, make the argument that because of its relatively lower intensity, then the keto diet is particularly suited to these types of endurance events. Uh, because, you know, like you mentioned earlier, most of or a higher percentage of the energy that you're burning is fat in these lower intensity runs. Yeah, there are a variety of fat relevant or fat associated diets. So you mentioned the keto diet, there's a high fat without ketosis, there's um, low carbohydrate, uh, high fat diets, there's manipulations of how much protein you may eat and contribute with with those sorts of diets, sort of a variety of nuances. And everybody seems to have a different opinion every time a study comes out that shows a particular fat fat emphasizing diet isn't useful or changes physiology in a way that isn't helpful for a runner, then you know, there there are, are throngs of people who speak up and say, well, that's because they just didn't do the, sci- the science exactly right and you should have tweaked it this way or that way. But what I'll say in a nutshell for you is that now, even after many decades of research on this, and by the way, there have been decades of research on this, um, it, it seems that with every generation of scientists or every generation of, of runners, a lot of these new ideas or these old ideas crop back up and a lot of people think that they're new they're they're not there have been waves of this in the past as well but we have we have quite a lot more people doing research on it now than we ever did in the past and while there are a lot of I should say a lot there there are quite a few studies that show ketogenic diets um, people in ketosis people in high fat low carbohydrate diets can have certain changes in physiology that one would think should help them perform in an endurance event. The other aspects that are necessary for performing in an endurance event are often hindered or hampered or downregulated. The classic example here being that you actually become worse at being able to use glycogen. And there are no performance benefits shown. When performance measures are made, it shows generally no difference or in some some situations an impaired performance. So the bottom line is I can't, based on any evidence, recommend uh, any of those sorts of diets for any endurance athlete. Thank you for that uh, quick explanation. I, I think it's uh, helpful for a lot of runners to hear, you know, what the science says and uh, a dispassionate analysis of that science. Um, now, Sean, maybe we can zoom out a little bit and and just think about, you know, ultra marathons in broader popular culture in the broader running community, and you know, they have certainly gotten a lot more popular over the last, say, five or ten years. And uh, more and more people are doing them, more and more people are training for them. And, you know, you have some, you have this incredible experience of not only completing a lot of these ultra marathons, but uh, studying the physiology and the science behind it. And with your podcast, talking to a lot of the heavy hitters in, you know, the research world who are doing really interesting work on endurance and other exercise physiology uh, parameters. So, 
you know, if you were to look at everything that, you know, regular runners in the popular culture think about ultra marathons, what do you think is one of the biggest myths that a lot of folks believe that simply isn't true? I think probably the biggest error in thinking or the thing that I would I would encourage changing for people who have not attempted an ultra marathon but are sort of ultra curious is that it's not out of reach of almost anybody. It's a rare person who would be unable to run an ultra marathon. And I think a lot of people view it as something extraordinary for somebody with extraordinary genetics or an extraordinary mindset. And I find, and the physiology shows, we're all built to be able to do that. None of us, however, <laughs> are built to actually do that. That is, Homo sapien was not built to run 100 miles, but we are almost all capable of it. That's a good point. And you know, I intuitively experienced that with my first ultra marathon because I, I had a, a lot of folks in the, the strength running community who were excited that I was about to embark on this journey of completing an ultra. And, you know, I'm, I was going into the ultra as someone who had just a couple years before run a 239 marathon. I had weeks of 80 plus miles on my legs and, you know, I only made it to mile 17. I had to drop out with uh, a knee problem. But the people that I saw finishing this 50K that I entered here in Colorado, that ended up being probably a, not the smartest decision. I think it had about seven or 8,000 feet of elevation gain. So a very difficult ultra to choose for your first. But the folks that I saw finishing that ultra were not the ideal runner body. They probably were not the people winning all the shorter races on the road out here in Denver. And it was just very interesting for me to experience it kind of on the opposite, in the opposite way. You know, I was someone who had some success in running and I had just experienced this failure. Meanwhile, all these runners who, you know, you would not look at them and think, oh, these, these guys are running this mountainous ultra marathon at altitude there they were and they were doing it and they were thriving and they were succeeding and they were finishing and I couldn't say the same. So I think that's a really great point. And I think it just makes the ultra marathon distance, whether that's a 50 K or even a hundred miler, just a lot more accessible to the average runner. And if it's something that they want to do, I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility. I love the way you, you put that because it's so true. I get a kick every single time out of being on the finish line of ultra marathons, because every single time I'm reminded of just what you said, that the people coming through in the front, you've got people who look like, you know, quote unquote, look like runners. You look at them like, yeah, that, I'd, I'd pick them out of, out of any crowd and say, that's a runner coming in right next to somebody that you'd look at and you'd think, I don't know if they've ever run a mile in their life. And the same thing is at the back of the, at back of the race as well. The people coming in all the way at the back are all shapes and sizes, some that look like they you, you would have guessed they might come in the front, and people that you think maybe never run never run a mile. It the longer the event, the harder it is to to pick out the the look, quote unquote, of of what should be a runner in the front versus in the back. I just think that's so encouraging for anyone who is thinking about doing ultra but maybe has some hang-ups or reservations about it. 
go for it. Do the training, of course, get prepared and do the work, but don't let that stop you. Cause I think, uh, you know, almost anyone can run ultra if they really put their mind to it. Um, Sean, this, this was so interesting. And, and I love talking to someone who can really dive into some of the more specifics of the physiology behind these more extreme events. Um, but I want to end on a note that is getting you excited. Um, when you think back to all the research that's been done in, uh, let's call it ultra endurance physiology, what are you most excited about that has happened in the last five or 10 years? What's the biggest discovery or revelation that is just, you know, very interesting to you intellectually? Well, I can come at that from, from multiple angles. So when I think about training, I think about the ability to train three things. We can train our minds, we can train our bodies, and we can train our craft. And depending on the distance, there may be more craft or less, less craft involved, gear, hydration, all of those sorts of things, navigation, even if you're in, uh, doing those kinds of events. But the two the two area the other two areas body and mind in terms of body what is what's really exciting me most is a an appreciation by the exercise science world that we can continue to hit paces and perform when we are even a day like a true literal day 24 hours beyond what we normally would have thought of as fatigue so we have to completely re-understand our definitions of fatigue and the ultra marathon distances give us an opportunity to to do that the other aspect of of body or physiology that really excites me is how the nutrition world when we were just talking about nutrition but how the nutrition world is stepping up to understand what's going on. Everything from GI health and the role of the microbiome, that is all the bacteria living there, how they and our gut relate then to being able to, to facilitate keeping our bodies nourished and nourished properly for that. The, the most exciting nuance in that for me is looking at how we can manipulate glycogen intake relative to our training timing to try to enhance both fat use and carbohydrate use. We mentioned fat adaptation type diets, but there's actually a lot more of exciting stuff going on with manipulating carbohydrate just at the right times to nudge and to push on developing on our endurance. For example, somebody who is really packed with carbohydrates doesn't have nearly the same response to a long run in terms of the stimulus for adaptation as somebody who finishes a run with low glycogen levels. There are switches there that are very sensitive to the amount of prevailing energy available within the cell that change how we respond and whether we do at all even at the cellular level to an endurance pursuit. And we're just beginning to get into, into understanding that. So that excites me. On the side of the mind, I think it's just this, this incredible recognition of, of that we all have our demons, that um, people with depression, people with anxiety are, are all around us, if it's not you yourself, and that there's so much less stigma on that than there ever was, recognizing that things like sadness 
are just as important and just as useful an emotion as happiness, that sadness isn't something to be um, avoided or put away. It's it's something to be understood. And um, and that's different from depression. But these other these other mental conditions are are all part of the rainbow of 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 our that is ourselves and our own mind. So once we have now started to break down those stigmas, we can openly talk about the sorts of mental approaches that then become useful for people going into endurance events. And that is going to help people be so much more successful, whether they're running a 10K or they're running 100 miles. Oh, I'm getting excited just thinking about all that. Yeah, it just seems like there's some great developments on the physical side, the mental side, and we're really moving things forward and making uh, these discoveries that I I think at the end of the day make some of these, you know, quote unquote extreme events, like let's say a hundred mile distance, they make it seem a lot more approachable for most runners. And I know that I certainly, you know, coming out of college with more of a track background, more of a speed oriented background, you know, I looked at a hundred miles as something you might do in a week, not necessarily in in one race. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't really appealing to me. And, and I think over the last couple years, five, 10 years, We've really seen some of the some of the science uh, reaffirm that these events aren't as extreme as we think. That a lot of average people can do them, and a lot of uh, normal runners can excel at them too. So I think it's really exciting. I think it's super encouraging. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for all your work. Uh, I, I know that you know one of you. You have one of the best podcasts out there for ultra marathoners. And if folks want to check out what you're up to these days, where can they go? Science of Ultra. The website is scienceofultra.com. My Twitter handle is at scienceofultra. You type into any web uh, browser, Science of Ultra, and, and you'll find me. God, that was so easy. I love it. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for your expertise. I appreciate it. It's been a great joy. Thank you, Jason, for bringing me on. And keep doing the great work that you're doing. You're, you have a fantastic podcast of your own. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes my chat with Professor Sean Bearden. If you're an ultra runner or maybe just ultra curious, don't miss his podcast, The Science of Ultra. And if this episode was inspiring, helpful, or you just want to give me a virtual high five, a review on Apple Music is most appreciated. This episode is also made possible by support from Gatorade Endurance. Use code STRENGTH20 for 20% off at GatoradeEndurance.com. Reformulated in 2017 to be even more effective, Gatorade Endurance Formula is a specialized sports drink. That means it has higher amounts of sodium and potassium to help sustain hydration, maintain proper fluid balance, and replace key electrolytes that you lose when you're out running. Plus, it has no artificial sweeteners or flavors, and it has a lighter flavor designed for athletes training longer. I know the last thing I want when I'm two hours into a long run is a strong flavor that might upset my stomach. Gatorade Endurance Formula also now offers a multi-carbohydrate blend to help you dial it in and maintain performance over much longer runs. Now, different carbs are utilized at different rates. So this advancement actually helps you both run longer and lower any risk of stomach distress because your stomach isn't working so hard to digest those carbs all at once. You can check out all of their flavors, including caffeinated and non-caffeinated options, at GatoradeEndurance.com. And don't forget to use code STRENGTH20 for your 20% discount. Thanks again for listening, all. Until next time. 